Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin, and I have a special guest with us today. We have Dr. Howard Schubiner. Dr. Howard Schubiner is board certified in pediatrics, adolescent medicine, and internal medicine. He is also a fellow in the American College of Physicians, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Society for Adolescent Medicine. He's a known expert in ADHD in both adolescents and adults, as well as mindfulness, meditation, and stress reduction. He's offered over 60 publications, given over 250 lectures to scientific audiences, both nationally and internationally, on topics you know, related as adolescent medicine, stress reduction, ADHD. He sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Adolescent Health, as well as the Journal of Attention Disorders. And currently, he practices at Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan, where he is the founder and director of the Mind Body Medicine program there, which I'm sure we will talk more about in the program. Dr. Schubiner, thanks for joining us on Straight Shot Health Talk. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I appreciate it. Well, we touched on some of your background there, but you, you, you know, your, your uh, CV is so extensive. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your background and what you're doing now? Uh, well, I was at Wayne State uh, for many years, 18 years, and I rose in the ranks to become a full professor, doing research, teaching, taking care of patients. And um, after a while, I just began to notice that I was um, quite stressed in my life. I had had some neck pain. I had some high blood pressure. And I started um, meditating. I got interested in mindful meditation in the late 90s. And I became a teacher of that. And that kind of propelled me to change my life a bit and look at my life a little bit differently. And one of the things I did is I ended up getting a job offer at Providence Hospital. So I left the medical school and I came over here to Providence where I've been for the last uh, 13 years now. And one of the things that happened here was that I was uh, told a story by a good friend and colleague of mine about a woman who had had a lot of pain, a relatively young woman who had a lot of back pain and leg pain, and she had been through surgery and injections and rhizotomy and a variety of things. And somebody told her to read a book by Dr. Sarno, and she did, and she got better. And this guy said to me, Howard, you should look into it. And so I did. All right. That Dr. Sarno was Dr. John Sarno, author of Healing Back Pain, or what, I think Mind Over Back Pain. I can't remember. There's yeah, two, both both of those both of those two books there. And and uh, what happened when you did that? I started reading about the connection between the mind and the body in terms of chronic pain and a variety of other things, and I was frankly astounded by what I was reading, and. Uh, it just made so much sense to me, and it, it explained so many things that I've seen and patients that I'd seen. And I didn't know if it would really work or not, but I decided to call Dr. Sarno, and uh, he had me come out to New York City and visit him for a few days, and I worked with him. And uh, when I got back to Michigan, I decided to set up a little program to see if this was something that I could 
that would help people. So I started working uh, with people who had um, chronic headaches or back pain or fibromyalgia or abdominal pain or pelvic pain. And um, I just kept reading and trying to find what were the techniques and approaches and explanations that would help people. And over time, I developed something that has actually helped a lot of people. Fantastic. And I always find this interesting because um, you know we've talked a little bit before the episode, my own experiences when it came to chronic pain and sort of what is known, or at least what is commonly spoken in the medical community versus what really a lot of the literature really shows. And why do you think that, you know, we as physicians aren't hearing this more earlier on, or at least it's not spread, that there is this connection between the brain and the body, and it is not, we're not talking woo-woo science, we're not talking, you know, I, I don't want to insult anybody, but but chakras or anything like that. It really comes down that there is a connection between the brain and the body that is much more profound and has such effects, certainly greater than I think that, that we really discussed in medical school. Do you have any uh, insight on that? Yeah, it's fascinating, really. Once you, <laughs> once you get into it and you see how common these types of disorders are, these mind-body disorders, and you see how, how, um, how um, important they are, how powerful they are, how strongly they affect people's lives, and yet how oftentimes relatively simple it is to help turn that around. And so it makes you wonder, why isn't this more well-known? There's a lot of research on the mind-body connection, so if people really delve into it, as I did, and as you have, you begin to see there's, there's lots of research. But doctors, and as you well know, and we, we were trained in a time when it was, it was turning against that. The mind-body connection was really quite well accepted in the early half of the last century. But after the Second World War and the rise of biological medicine, the technological medicine, I should say, where there were just more and more discoveries, we began to think that, you know, we could cure people of heart disease and cancer and diabetes and infectious diseases by more and more technology. And so when it came to things like pain, even though we didn't understand pain, we couldn't find it in most people, we couldn't find the source of it, we just kind of just kept using those technological approaches because that's all we knew. Yeah, it, uh, it's a little disheartening at times. It's interesting, that the, particularly with, with back pain, as our technology has gotten more advanced, you know, the results that we're attaining, the, the outcomes that we're having with back pain are no better, if not worse, than they were 20 years ago. And I'm just not sure a lot of people seem to recognize or know that. I know it's amazing. The number the number of people on disability for back pain has risen as we've become more technologically based, and um, and the use of MRIs has uh, shot up. And the more MRIs that occur, the more people feel that they're damaged and broken because MRIs, as you well know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, are abnormal in most people, whether they have back pain or not. Absolutely, and the and then the beliefs that we engender in patients about that their spines are disintegrating or things like that, or, or it's uh, it's pretty awe-inspiring. But let's re- let's return back to you a little bit because sometimes I think, um, especially as physicians, it's easy for people to think that we're we're living in a different world that they were not human. But you had your own pain, 
And can you talk a little bit more about when you noticed your pain coming on and, and your beliefs at that time before you, you met Dr. Sarno and, and got into the mindfulness meditation? Um, most of my... Um most of my patients have had a variety of pains in their life. And most people have, as a matter of fact, as well. And it turns out, I believe, that being human means that there is mo is, it's, mo it's most likely that there will be pain in your life at some point in time. And not all that pain will be a mind-body type pain or what I call a neural pathway pain. Some of it obviously will be from broken ankles or arms or sprains or twists or whatever, but most most injuries will heal. In fact, almost all injuries will heal. And what I've had in my life at a variety of times is pain that didn't go away with just, you know, a few days or a couple of weeks. Uh, the most telling time was when I had back pain, uh, neck pain, I'm sorry, um, at a time in my life where there was just a ton of stress in relation to work situation and home situation. And when that added up, uh, I started having this neck pain and I was told it was because I had arthritis and degenerative discs in my, in my neck and bulging discs. And um, I don't have neck pain now, but the MRI of my neck shows a lot of bad things <laughs> that are, you know, that are, uh, that are supposedly there. Well, at least supposedly causing the pain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's it's hard for people to grasp a hold of this. It's very hard. And so it's not only doctors who don't recognize it, but, you know, people don't recognize it. And oftentimes I see people who've had uh, pain for several months or usually several years, and when they finally come around to realizing that, in their case, the pain is not due to a disease process, but due to a, a neural pathway problem, um, they often say, you know, I would never have been ready to accept this in the past. When I first got it, I would never have been ready to believe this concept or even entertain this concept that my mind could be doing it. How could the mind do that to me? How could it be so powerful, uh, you know, to cause that much pain? It is, it's shocking. And so it's hard for people to grasp. Yeah, and it is, I, I, I guess, a little frustrating too um, to s when you see someone and you really would love to help them, and if they're just not ready to hear the information, there is not a whole lot that we can do sometimes. Yeah, not in this vein. They have to kind of follow their their journey or follow their path uh, to begin to figure it out. I, I saw a lady with trigeminal neuralgia recently, and uh, she'd had it for three years, and she said, how could this possibly be uh, a mind-body type problem. I mean, there's 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 associations, there's societies, there's doctors, there's surgeries, there's lectures, there's this huge apparatus, there's support groups of all the people. Then no one ever mentions ever the the concept that there could be a connection in even a little way to emotions. Yeah, and uh, we've touched on that in a, on a prior episode. I have two episodes on on pain itself. And, um, you know, I think it's important to, to just reiterate again, you know, pain is an experience and it is we have to have an awake brain in order to generate it. And when we talk about emotions, emotions really provide this context and understanding and really provide the meaning behind these sensations that we feel. And 
I, I, you know, I just am always frustrated it, it, what a bad job we do sometimes as physicians in trying to explain this in ways that people can get. And uh, the amount of information out there, if you, you, know, you get these, these new ads that come up and, and these lectures that people do and, and talking about whatever, the, the surgeries for pain. And, and, you know, we can't fix pain because of the central process. We can fix like a broken bone. But we, right. you know, the, the, the pain itself is something that we generate internally from, you know, whole different processes and, and things. There's a great study by uh, Ethan Cross at University of Michigan a few years ago. And uh, what he did was he, he uh, gave people pain in their arms by, you know, holding uh, something relatively hot, not burning, to their arm. And he, he scanned their brain to see what the effect of that was. And then he gave them a an emotional distressing thing, uh, and he scanned their brain. And what happened is is that the pain, the the since the uh, changes in the brain are the same in both in the physically painful situation and the emotionally painful situation. And so what I say is that physical pain causes emotional pain, but at the same time, emotional pain can cause physical pain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you started having your pains then, how, when did you notice this association between the stress that you were undergoing and your neck pain? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was before I knew about this. You know, I eventually just got better. I had physical therapy and uh, my life changed and the stresses got better and, you know, the pain went away. Um, but... Uh, so that was more, I recognized that it was most likely a mind-body problem in retrospect. Um, but uh, since that time, I've noticed, you know, many times where I've had uh, painful, painful uh, sensations that were obviously due to something that was going on in my life. You, you connected the dots there. And right, right. But those have lasted much shorter amounts of time because mm-hmm. I was much more aware of what was going on. And I worried about them less and I didn't I didn't pursue uh, you know uh, medical uh, interventions that I didn't need excellent yeah I think that um, you know part of the part of the important piece that we are missing sometimes is that awareness and I think if, if once people start becoming aware of how their body responds to stressors then when they occur, you, you can pick them up a little bit earlier, perhaps. Maybe you can, you can at least associate it with, it with what's going on. But I think there's a lot of people out there that may be saying, I have no idea why my problems with my spouse are caught. You know, how could that be related to the pain in the back that I'm having? Uh, it's just you know, very difficult right. for them to learn or at least to kind of put their, their, their head around. Right. Well, there's, there's a couple of points there. One is that pain is often a metaphor. And, uh, you know, it's, we do recognize that when someone, ha- we, we call it heartache. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when someone's heart is broken and you have heartache. So we recognize that emotions in that situation are tied to some physical sensations. We recognize that, um, you know, people can, someone can be a pain in your neck or someone can be a pain in your butt. And, uh, you know, these things are colloquialisms that are true (laughs) and that are real. (laughs) 
And yeah. what we don't often recognize is that frequently the, 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 the stress in our lives that triggers painful um, reactions has its genesis in earlier uh, stresses in our lives. And so it's, it's, and that's really hard for people to understand, especially physicians to understand that someone who had a, uh, say, an emotionally abusive parent and then has an emotionally abusive boss, those two things often create the, the situation where the brain turns on this painful reaction. What do you do when people come in and say, you know, you, you start providing this background and you start talking about how the emotions in the brain influence uh, the expression of pain, and they say, hey, are you telling me that all of my pain is made up? Mm -hmm. Right. It's, that's one of the most common problems that we have is that somehow people have the idea that pain that's generated by the brain isn't real. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, pain that's generated by the brain is often more severe than pain generated by the body. And sometimes pain is generated by the body and by the brain and amplified by the brain. And so it takes a careful history and physical to, and review of lab tests and x-rays and MRIs and everything to, to really sort that out. But all pain is real. And the pain that occurs uh, from uh, emotional reactions to things is very real and it's extremely common. I'd like to, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, situation that happened in 1995 in Britain where there's this construction worker who jumped off a scaffolding and landed on a big roofing nail and they have a picture in the medical, British Medical Journal of this nail going all the way through his boot <laughs> out the other side and uh, this guy screamed all the way to the hospital. I mean just literally screamed, writhing in pain and uh, narco IV narcotics didn't even touch him. And when they ripped off his boots, the nail was between his toes. He had no injury, <laughs> no physical injury. And that is just shocking, but true and, and real. I mean, that's how our brains work. That's how our bodies work. Yeah, the, the context, the, the context kind of defines what the problem will be or how we experience well, it. Right. Well, what I, what I explain to people is that pain is a message. When you break an ankle, the message is, you know, don't walk on it, get crutches, you know, see if you need surgery or not. But when you have pain at a, at a time in your life when, uh, you know, you find out your spouse is cheating on you or, you're, or you have a child who's um, uh, acting out in some ways that are incredibly distressing, the message that the brain is giving you is, you know, you need to do something about this dangerous situation in your life. It's interpreting your situation as danger, as if as just as similar to if you had hurt yourself or you're being chased by a uh, by a lion or tiger. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what would be the first step that you would recommend to people who either have chronic pain or have uh, irritable bowel syndrome or chronic headaches or things, what would be the first step that, that you would recommend for them? Well, uh, the first step is to uh, look at the medical situation with clear and um, careful uh, eyes and a clear and careful mind 
to see if there really is some tissue damage situation going on here or not. Um, the vast majority of people who have headaches, including migraine, do not have a tissue damage situation going on. They don't have vasculitis. They don't have a brain tumor. They don't have a subdural hematoma, et cetera. Um, the vast majority of people who are diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome do not have a tissue damage situation going on in their gut. And it's true for back pain and neck pain as well, but you have to take those steps to try to sort out, well, is this something that really needs medical treatment or is this something that I can treat in a different way? And to me, that's the first, uh, the first step that people need to take. Yeah, I like, I like that because I, I tell people that you go to a doctor for them to tell you what you don't have, really not to tell you what you <laughs> do have. And so, you know, it's particularly with a lot of chronic medical conditions, you know, there's so the, the you know, for pretty, like back pain or headaches, just like you're saying, if it's a tumor or some horrible infection, they're so rare. And what you're looking for is a doctor that says you don't have cancer, you don't have some horrible disease, you don't have some abscess in your back, you know, things that we can find because badness, we're pretty good at picking up badness. But for the other right. 95%, I, we shouldn't even be saying anything. We should, we know it's not this stuff. You have pain, but it is not from these things that we have medical treatments that are appropriate for. Yeah. And frequently what's happened is people have been scared by what other doctors have told them or their interpretations of what their headaches are or what their irritable bowel is, is or what their back or neck pain is. Um, because if they've been given a, t a purely biological explanation, it, it may not be true. For example, people will say, well, oh, why do I have headaches? Oh, well, it's genetic. As <laughs> if there's a genetic gene for headaches that they got and they're doomed to have headaches the rest of their life because they have this gene. Uh -huh. That's not true. That is not medically, scientifically true. And it's the same with irritable bowel. And, just, and again, we get into the problem with how people interpret their MRI results. I saw a lady who had uh, pain radiating down her arm, and she was told it was from a disc that was bulging in her neck. But when you looked at which disc was bulging and where the pain was, it was a different place from where she had the pain. And so the fear that was being created in her by a medical explanation, which was not true, uh, created more pain. Yeah, we, and we haven't even touched on how fear propagates and drives pain. <laughs> you know, that's uh, Exactly, uh, right. Well, that's what I was saying, but the yeah. message is like you're being chased by a tiger, and fear drives pain, pain drives fear. And it just becomes a, can become a really vicious cycle. So when you started the mind-body program at Providence, then what, what were the first steps that you did? Like, how, how did you design this program? What I did was um, look as carefully at the literature as I could to try to find things that would fit into a program. And I came up with four components to the program. The first is education. And that's what we've been talking about uh, most recently, just here. The education, the understanding that if this is true, of course, and it is true for most of my patients, but not all uh, that seek my help, that this is a neural pathway problem. This is not a tissue damage problem. That they can get better. And asking them to begin to believe that they can get better, begin to have hope and optimism that this can occur. And a lot of times 
the message people are given with chronic pain is that you won't get better and we'll just help you cope with it. And so I find that turning that around, which I believe is completely true, to hope and optimism is the is the first step as they understand what's what the what's really wrong with them. The the second component is a whole variety of behavioral techniques that I use and help people through. And this involves if it's pain, stopping being afraid of the pain. Because as we said, fear drives pain, pain drives fear. So if they can take the hugely courageous step of saying, I'm not afraid of this pain. I realize it's real. I realize it's there. But I realize it's going to get better and that I can learn to control it is a huge step. And then I ask people to challenge their pain and, and stop stop um, bowing down to the to the God of pain and begin to move and begin to um, and begin to uh, this may sound silly but begin to talk to the pain and begin to say I am not afraid I am not going to lose my life to you I'm going to act I'm going to move I'm going to bend and begin as they tell themselves this as they reprogram their brains they can begin to reprogram their body to have less pain so that's the second kind of major component. The third step is to do emotional work. And uh, we could talk about that uh, at length, but uh, there's a variety of, of ways to work on the emotions that have created or are continuing to create pain. And the fourth component of the program is to, for people to take a look at their life to see is there some kind of change that needs to be made? Is there a situation where they need to stand up to someone or say something or, or do something or change a relationship or whatever. And so I find if you take those four components together, the education, the behavioral work, the emotional work, and the life change situation work, uh, it can create a real um, powerful combination for uh, alleviating pain. How long is your, your typical program then when you take people through this process? So uh, what I do is I... I have people come in for an initial visit, which is two to two and a half hours. So I take the time to really take their whole life history and medical history and examine them and really do the educational work to see if this diagnosis is correct for them and to see if it makes sense to them and to see if they, to see if they want to pursue it. And if they do, then I usually have one or two individual office visits with them. And then I oftentimes have them come in a small group class situation, which is a four-week class. We meet once a week for uh, for three hours in a small group, and we go through the exercises that I've developed for people, which include meditative exercises, writing exercises, um, uh, self uh, self-talk affirmations, and change reprogramming the brain exercises and emotional work. Fantastic. Now, you also have a study that you are currently working on regarding your program. Correct. Uh, we did a small, uh, a couple years ago, we published a small pilot study with uh, uh, women who had fibromyalgia using this program and comparing it to treatment as usual. And we found that this program was uh, highly effective in um, compared to the uh, treatment as usual group in uh, reversing pain in a uh, uh, significant proportion of people. Um, about um, yeah, at a six-month follow-up, 
we found that uh, more than 50% of people had a more than 50% reduction in pain, which is pretty remarkable for a illness which the natural history is does not get better, period. Uh, we're now doing a study, a, l a larger study, funded by the National Institutes of Health, uh, again in fibromyalgia patients, where we're comparing an emotional intervention to a b cognitive and behavioral intervention for pain, and that those results are not available yet. Oh, that'll be exciting to see, though. I'll be uh, looking forward to that. Now, with your at, at your six months, you have said fifty percent of the patients had a fifty percent reduction in pain overall. Mm -hmm. How fifty percent or more? Fifty percent or more. Were there any that had complete resolution? Oh yeah, absolutely. Do you, yeah. do you happen to know? Probably about uh, I, I probably about uh, I think it's twenty-five to thirty percent will have pain, which is um, you know pretty much undetectable. It, and that is absolutely amazing. You know. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. The funny thing is, is that we were tr I think we were trained as physicians that well, pain if it's due to a broken ankle, you fix the ankle and the pain will go away, but chronic pain won't go away. It's just a chronic situation. Uh, so it's it looked at, it's looked on as a static process, but I think of pain as a really dynamic process, and I and if you really talk carefully to people and closely and you'll see that pain often shifts from place to place, or it, it, it's worse at certain times and better at other times. And, and if you really pay attention to how pain changes with life situations, with life stress, with emotional situations, you can begin to see that pain is really a dynamic process. And, um, and because we're human, uh, pain is, is part of life. It will happen. I get pain that's caused by stress and, and, and my mind, uh, you know, not uncommonly. And I just, but fortunately, I'm able to recognize it most of the time <laughs> and uh, not get too, uh, too, you know, frightened by it. No, absolutely. And, and you know, just love what you said right there, that pain is a dynamic process. And it is very, very true. And I, I just got to return to that part where you said 25 to 30 percent had complete resolution because when we, you, you know, People know my background. I, I was actually fellowship trained in pain, and we did not talk about curing pain one bit. And I do think that's a complete disservice. So we're, we're, we're putting this mindset in people that they cannot have a cure, that they will not get better, that they have a condition that they are trapped in for the rest of their life, and that is simply not true. So Right, right. And that's yeah, a that huge proportion, me. 25 to 30% for any sort of medical intervention. is a That's a large large you know group so right and some people's pain will come back and and some people's pain will go away later you know it's uh sometimes it takes a while for people to um uh to recover because it's it's hard you know it may take a while to accept the diagnosis and then they've they have to go to more medical treatments before they may realize that the medical treatments aren't going to work or they have to get off their narcotics before they can be pain-free or they have to you know begin to deal with some of the emotional issues in their life you know you know frankly a lot of the people who I see have been really hurt and really damaged in their lives by situations of abuse and or neglect or abandonment and uh, you know it's like treating PTSD mm -hmm. you know you have to really work over time to unravel uh, the life stress uh, situations. And, and I want to expand on that just very briefly here because what I also heard sort of between the lines is when you're talking about work, 
it requires some work of the individual. And the patient, this is a, a very patient-driven process, if I'm understanding you correctly, where they have to be directly involved. They have to make, um, you know, put a lot of these, you know, we could put out the information for them, but they need to kind of figure out these links for themselves as well. It's, it's really difficult for one person to just to say, you know, your pain is this, you, that, that's it. The, the, there has to be, there's a, there's a process involved where, where the patient has to kind of recognize what's going on in their life and in some ways, not to assume a victim role. So, so something bad has happened to them. What are they going to do next to recover from that rather than, you know, get trapped in that whole situation? Yeah, it's exactly true. And a lot of people have a hard time doing that on their own. And that's where oftentimes they need therapy. And there's a variety of types of therapy that I found to be quite effective for this or more effective for this than the, uh, the common uh, cognitive and behavioral approaches that we use. And, uh, you know, I tell my patients, I, I just wish I had a magic wand that I could just wave over you. But it is work. And But what, what we found is that because, as I said before, the pain is a message, it's telling you something, that there's something amiss mm -hmm. in your life. And when people begin to grapple with this, they realize that they're changing their life for the better in order to change their pain. And Frequently, people say, well, if you take my pain away, I'll be happy. And I have to say, we have to help you to become happy with who you are in order to take your pain away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Schubiner, is there any other recommendations that you have, other books other than your fantastic book, which we will be linking to in the show notes here, or other resources if people, you know, unfortunately... Uh, Southfield, Michigan's a little far away from everybody in the United States, right. and you can't see everybody. So, you know, what would you recommend for them to look for resources in their own? I really like the tmswiki.org website. tmswiki.org, okay. Yeah. It's a peer-run uh, organization. It's nonprofit. Uh, it has It's 501c3. It has great information. It, we've gathered together a host of experts and and uh, there's a forum on there you can ask questions you can get information you can get answers to your questions um, it's just a great resource for mind-body type problems fantastic all right well dr. Schubiner again thank you so much for joining us I know people are going to get a lot out of this episode here and uh, we will as I said link to your site unlearn your pain as well as your fantastic book unlearn your pain and all the rest of you, until the next time, stay well.